in high school, I, I wasn't much for poetry. I was more for, for basketball. When we had a, an assignment in English class to, uh, to pick a poem to memorize, I was struggling because Shakespeare didn't really speak to me. And I was looking through, and then I finally found the one I wanted. And it jumped off the pages to me. Alfred Lord Tennyson. Do you know which one I'm talking about? The Charge of the Light Brigade. This uh, soldier, 600 of them on horse, and they're given a command. The command, which was a miscommunication or a misunderstanding, basically is going to send them to their grave. You're to go in here, and uh, there's cannon to left of you, cannon to right of you, volleyed and thundered, stormed out with shot and shell. Boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600. And, and they know they're going to die, but they ride, ride into the enemy trap, and sure enough, 600 of them all die. And I've wondered, what if I was one of the 600? What if it was 601? And Brian was the guy on the last horse. And, and, I, and I know that the, the commander did not understand the situation. And the only reason they sent us was because they did not quite understand the whole situation. And so we all are going to take off. And I'm kind of thinking that if I was part of that cavalry, Tennyson would have had to add a verse at the end where he talks about the coward who kind of slipped away into the woods. Um, Because that might have been me. Because for us, we're like, well, that was dumb. They just rode into their death. But what we don't feel that they felt was this great sense of loyalty. Their loyalty was so great that they were going to have a commitment to the mission. And here's what I want to say to you today. Your participation in the mission of Jesus reveals your loyalty to Jesus. I want to talk about mission and loyalty. So uh, it's so good to be back to be back with you uh, this morning. Last Sunday, I was in the Dominican Republic uh, with David Maddox from our mission team, and we were there with a, a team uh, with Black Box International. Highland Park supports them, and they help boys who have been rescued out of sex trafficking. And it was a really heavy weekend for us. And we got to see um, the good and the bad and the ugly uh, that is happening there. We saw the church in all its beauty loving these boys. And it was the most wonderful thing uh, to be worshiping uh, there. And I, I only catch some Spanish, um, but I caught a little bit. But what I caught really clearly was a church who loved these boys. And I saw the boys interacting with other students and adults. And that was just warmed my heart. That was the highlight of the whole trip, was to see how the local church there is loving these boys who have been rescued from such trauma. Now, the worst part was seeing uh, just the issue of trafficking taking place. And people are, are going, tourists, to the Dominican Republic to abuse little boys and little girls and is just unreal, the evil. And I kept thinking about the passage in James, which talks about sin, when it is full grown, leads to death. I just kept thinking all weekend, man, that's death. It's death there, and it's death there, and we're seeing what the traffickers are doing. They're just trashing human lives. And I say that to you this morning, because when we open up God's word, we're not messing around. This stuff matters. And when we walk into sin, and that sin becomes full-grown, it leads to death, and not just our death, 
but the death of people around us, that we can lead people astray and we can hurt people. And every time we walk away from God's word, there's a price to pay. And it's an ugly, ugly price. And so every time we open God's word, it's serious. And when we look at God's word, it reveals God's great mission to us. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 4. I just got done listening to Krista Welt's sermon uh, here last week. And I so appreciate him being here. hope that you were here for that. I love hearing him preach and his heart uh, for the nations. God's heart for the nations was his topic, which was fantastic. You know, Jesus and Jonah have quite a few things in common and... uh, if, if you've missed the last few weeks, you know, Jonah is told by God, go to Nineveh, this evil city, these people that you detest. You want them to, to die. You want them to be judged by God and uh, to get burned up. And that's really what you want. But God says, I want you to go to them and to preach to them. And Jonah says, no way. And he runs the opposite direction, gets on a boat. But a storm and a big fish finally get Jonah's attention. And God gives him a second chance. And that's what we studied last week. And God says, I still want you to go to Nineveh, go to that evil city, go preach. And Jonah does. And then the crazy thing happens in the verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, because they repented, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So God saved them. He had showed grace upon them and did not destroy them. And so Jonah, you would think, is going to be really happy that all of this happens. But that's not what happens in chapter 4. But Jesus and Jonah, they both have a mission to go and to save. Jesus and Jonah, uh, Matthew 12 says, For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah and Jesus both slept through a big storm. They both were thrown into the storm to save the rest. Jonah into the water. Jesus into crucifixion. God was fishing for mankind. And if he had to throw Jonah to the fish in order to do it, so be it. God was fishing for mankind. And if Jesus had to die, well, that was the only way. Jesus knew his mission. He tells us to seek And to save the lost. And we ought not be surprised at the mission he's giving us. To go and seek and save the lost. You know, the great commission, we call it. Jesus' words before he ascends into heaven is, Go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnic ethnic groups, all people. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them everything I've commanded you and I will be with you always. We call that the Great Commission. It's the mission of God to seek and to save the lost, to to go and to baptize and to teach, all of that. If you have your uh, bulletins, please open them up to the sermon page. There's a sermon page in there with some notes. If you don't have that, you can kind of just do this little exercise in your head. But there, there's probably a pen in front of you and the seat back in front of you, or you might have one with you. Grab out a pen real quick, and we're just going to do a quick little, uh, a little quiz here, a little self-evaluation. This is, I think it's good for us to do these things, and this is just going to take a minute. But I want you, on a scale of 1 to 10... Uh, to rate how true the following statements are. A 10 means it's absolutely 100% true of me. One means not true at all, completely false. And I want you to rate yourself, just yourself on this, 
just, I'm going to give you like one second to rate yourself. So it's not going to be a lot of thought behind it. Just a quick answer. Number one, I know the Great Commission. Okay, that's kind of easy. Probably just a yes or no. Number two, write yourself here. I think about the Great Commission. Going and making disciples, baptizing, teaching. Number three, I care about the Great Commission. Number four, how true is this of you? This week I've prayed specifically for people who don't know God. Five, this past month, I've attempted to make disciples by going to people who don't know God. Six, this past year, I've either baptized or been involved in teaching people about Jesus. It doesn't have to be formal at all. It be very informal. Be around lunch. Seven, my anger with non-Christians is bigger than my compassion for their souls. My anger with non-Christians is bigger than my compassion for their souls. Okay, if you're open to Jonah chapter 4, now that we've just done a little bit of self-assessment, kind of been thinking about that, what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of pick our way through this chapter, just kind of verse by verse, section by section. And I want to begin just by reading the first four verses. So, the people of Nineveh, have been saved after Jonah's traveled through the city, basically giving a, a really kind of a terrible, sad sermon of like, hey, you're all going to die. That was kind of his sermon text <laughs> and pretty easy outline. But he works his way through the city, and the people repent uh, and are, are saved from that. But Jonah's still not sure what all is going to happen. We get to verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you? To be angry? Maybe the world's biggest rhetorical question. No, it's not. You know, some preachers worry that when they preach a sermon, people won't listen and apply the sermon. That's what most preachers worry about. Jonah was worried that the people would listen and apply his sermon. (laughs) That's what he was worried about. He did not want them to change. You know, his views of God are dead on accurate. God, I know you're compassionate. I know you care about all these people. I know you're slow to anger. I know you're really patient and you want to forgive people. And God, that's why I did not want to preach. Because I hate those people so much. Because I don't even want to go there. I want to do my thing. And he's so mad that he's really dramatic. God, it'd be better for me just to die. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? It's in Luke chapter 15. There's the younger brother who takes his inheritance early and leaves the home and he he breaks his father's heart and he goes and kind of lives this party lifestyle and he blows all of his money and his reputation and his integrity, all of that stuff. And he ends up completely desperate and then one day he remembers the father and he thinks about the father 
and he decides to come back home to see if he'll be accepted or not. And when the father sees him, he runs to him and he hugs him and he says, let's kill the fattened calf and have a big feast and have a big party. And all the while, the older brother is watching this. And when he sees the younger brother come back, he's not happy. He's angry. And he thinks that dad should not be so compassionate. And, and he's, he's frustrated. And he goes out and he pouts, a lot like Jonah pouts here. And when the father goes to him and says, hey, should, should we not have a feast? That's God here saying, should we not celebrate? Should we not be happy? And the older brother just wants to pout. And here Jonah just wants to pout of like, no. For Jonah, he's more worried about his anger and his loyalty is revealed. He's loyal to himself and to his anger and to his bitterness than he is to God's mission to love people. Let's look at verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah, maybe he's still holding out hope that the city will be burned. And he doesn't want to miss the fireworks. So he's going to see, you know, maybe God will still destroy the city. We'll see, we'll see what happens. He makes a little shelter for himself to sit there. Then verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. Okay, this, I almost picture like a little cartoon. Can you almost see it? You know, the little plant grows up and gives him shade. And Jonah's like, ah, happy. And then the plant dies. He's like, oh, mad. And, and we're like, well, why, why did God do this? I, mean, I, I think God, again, is teaching Jonah a lesson. Do you care more about your shade than the city of those people? Is that really what you care about? And who provided the plant in the first place, Jonah? And don't you trust the person who can provide the plant or provide salvation for these people? And, and this is me adding to the text, Jonah, if you're so miserable, I know where you can get some rest and some water. Go back to the city, bud. But he's not going there. He doesn't want anything more to do with Nineveh. He's going to sit out here and he's going to pout. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Okay, this is already the third time Jonah has said, it would be better for me to die. Isn't that a bit dramatic, Jonah, that you would rather die than these people be saved? So we get to verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead again. <laughs> I mean, this guy just does not relent. I mean, we want him just to back down. You ever seen your kids in an argument and they just won't back down? Have you ever been in an argument and you just won't? back down, and there's just two people going at it, and they won't back down, two football players going at it, and they won't back down, somebody finally has to come separate them so often, just we won't back down, and God is just saying, back down, give it a break, Jonah, quit pushing against me, 
Instead, align yourself with my mission. Be loyal to me. God chose to save the city and to kill the vine. It's God's choice. Rather than the other way around, Jonah, he prefers vine over people. So God causes the sun to blaze on his head. When did, when did Jesus' anger blaze? Do you remember? If you could just make a list. When did Jesus get angry? Was it ever at the lost people? Or the outsiders? Or the hurting? No, it was arrogant. The hypocrites. The insiders making it difficult for the outsiders to come in. That's when Jesus got angry. When people were saying, hey, hey, get the kids away from Jesus. Then Jesus gets angry. Or Jesus says, hey, the temple is a house of worship for the nations, not just you. Then the people get angry. Or when Jesus says, hey, I, I love all people, even the Samaritans. Then the people get angry. What did Jonah get angry about when God said, love all of those, all of those people, those other people? That's when Jonah goes crazy. That's when he gets angry. Verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And God says, should I not care more for them? For Jonah, shady rest was more important than a lost city. And God's reply is, wrong. And what's crazy is, I don't know about in your, in your Bible, but that's the end of Jonah in mine. There's nothing else. I keep looking for chapter 5. I, I mean, if, if, I was, if I was making up the Bible, if I, was, if I was like part of this grand conspiracy to write the Bible, I would make Jonah look good. I think there's few books that prove that Jonah and the Bible are authentic and real and of God because nobody would write Jonah. It doesn't make Jonah look good at all. It makes him look like a creep. I think when we read texts like this, we need to be like, wow, God actually just tells us the truth as it is, the reality. Nobody would have ever made this stuff up. There's no chapter 5. God just lets it end right here, and we have got to wrestle through with like, man, what do I do with Jonah? I don't really like the guy, but sometimes I'm kind of like the guy. And so I was thinking, how do we end this? I don't want to end it by saying, like, well, don't be like Jonah. See you later. <laughs> I was thinking, what, is, what does it take to be the opposite of Jonah? It, it, it takes God's work in our hearts, right? Because to be honest, Jonah's heart is just natural. It's the instinct of mankind to be selfish and to be bitter and to get angry about stuff. And so I want to talk to you just for a few moments about what happens when God's heart becomes my heart, when God's heart becomes your heart. What happens when God replaces the ugly in your heart with the him in your heart, with the Jesus, and that your heart begins to be shaped to look like God's heart. Just for a few moments, a uh, few things that I see that Jonah reveals to us, even with a bad example. When God's heart becomes our heart, we move from bitterness to thankfulness. You know, prejudice lives a long time. 
the prejudice that Jonah had is in many ways the prejudice that Jesus still faced with the people in his day, hundreds of years later. Because every time Jesus went outside the Jewish box, he got hammered. And when you look at the first church, you really look at the whole ministry of Paul. If you're just to read through the book of Acts, just with looking through winter times that things go sour for Paul. And they go sour for Paul when he starts mentioning salvation has come for all people. That God loves everyone. And Paul comes and he proclaims that Jews and Gentiles and slave and free, male and female, are equal and free. And they can all come to salvation. And when Paul says that, people get angry. Because they're like, that guy? I know what that guy did. That person? Have you seen that person? Do you know about their ancestors? Do you know what their family did? Do you know what their culture does? Do you know what they say? Do you know about their, their family? Do you know about that city? Do you know all the things that that city has done? Have you heard about Nineveh? Have you heard what they do? And we become so angry at the people far from God that we forget that God has called us to be compassionate to those very people. You know, the Bible makes it pretty clear that Christians are to judge people inside the church, not outside. And when I say judge, I don't mean uh, like a harsh kick you out anytime, like you kind of mess up. But I mean to hold each other accountable, to help each other be like Christ. But, but the scripture, 1 Corinthians 5, is really clear. We are not to judge those outside the church. We're not to judge the sinful Ninevites or the lost Samaritans or whoever it may be. So if our anger is like growing and growing and growing for those people far from God, our anger is just in the wrong place. And actually that anger will work against us and God's mission. Because God's mission is to go to those people and let God change their hearts because we can't change their hearts. And to let Jesus save them and bring them into the church so they can be part of his mission. And if we become so angry at people far from God, I think God would just want us to pause and kind of question our loyalty. Are we more loyal to what makes us angry or to what makes God's heart beat? Because God cares for those people far from him. He loves them. And so we move from bitterness to this beautiful, beautiful thankfulness. If, if you have your Bibles, just turn over. There's a wonderful verse in Hebrews chapter 12. And I just want to read this one verse for us. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. What a beautiful start to this verse. That means the people that, who don't know of God's grace, see to it that they don't fall short. See to it that they know God's grace. Let people fully understand God's grace. But that's not the end of the verse. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. You see, bitterness works against grace and thankfulness. And when I understand that God has saved me and given me grace and that I did not deserve it, then I am so thankful to him that I'm not quite so angry at the rest of the world and those far from God who may even be making my life really difficult and miserable. So that's not the only place we move. We, we also, when God's heart comes and replaces our heart, we move from argumentative to trusting. 
See, we can argue against God. God, I don't like this. I disagree with this. I'm kind of thinking of James and John here a little bit, who we talked about in week one when they, uh, when they said, hey, Jesus, those Samaritans who have rejected you, can we call down fire on them? That's what we want to do. And I don't know that they could really do that, but they said, yeah, Jesus, this is a good plan. Let's just burn them to a crisp. And the text says Jesus rebuked them. Jesus said, no, no, no. I, I love those people. I, I want those people. Even if they reject me, I'm going to love them. That's the way of the kingdom. It's upside down from the rest of the world. That's the James and John we're talking about. And remember, Peter had his troubles too, and God had to teach him this lesson over and over and over that, hey, Peter, my grace is for the outsiders too, that there's no outsiders anymore even, that anybody can come to faith in Jesus. Anybody is welcome to be baptized. There's no more barriers up. And, and Peter and John both struggled with this, and there was times when it seemed like they were arguing with what Jesus wanted, with his mission. Do you remember in the book of Acts when it says the gospel opened up in Samaria? Do you know who the church sent to Samaria? You know, the church was praying, thinking, who should we send? Peter and John. Do you think God didn't at least smirk a little bit? Thinking, yeah, these are the guys because God was changing their heart. So that they could go, not just out of a punishment for them, but because God was changing their heart so that they could be a light and share God's light to the Samaritans. When God replaces our selfish and sinful hearts with his heart and what he wants to do, we move also from complaining about stupid things to caring about eternal things. I know that's kind of a weird point for a sermon, but I couldn't think of a better way to say it. And um, because I got to be with the high schoolers this morning, I have a great illustration. Can I use it? Okay, I will. Thanks. So one of our awesome high schoolers works at Chick-fil-A, and he was talking about how people get really angry sometimes, even at Chick-fil-A. How can you get angry at Chick-fil-A? I don't know. We were talking about how somebody came in really angry this week because they had the wrong bun. They didn't have the multigrain bun. And he slammed it on the counter, and he pushed it across the manager, and he said, does that look like a multigrain bun to you? (laughs) He's all worked up, wanted to talk to the manager, wanted to talk to the person who had actually taken the order and put the bun on it so they would know how awful his life now was. And I'm just like, man, what is wrong with people? You know, I'm, uh, and it's really funny when, um, you know, not funny. You spend a weekend with boys who've been rescued out of trafficking. And like, I don't care about your stupid multigrain bun, you know. Why is it that we get worked up, though? Because I get worked up about stupid stuff, too. I know that you're thinking of the last time that you did. Maybe the, per, maybe the multigrain person is even in here. We'll do a lineup later. Um, just a quick lineup to see if we can identify. Um, but why, why do we get angry about such stupid things sometimes? Because sometimes we walk away being like, man, I got kind of worked up. Or a spouse will say, like, why are you so angry about that? And I think sometimes we get so worked up about little things because we're not worked up about big things. And I think if our heart doesn't beat, like with the heartbeat of Jesus, to save people who don't know him, who are, who are headed for eternity apart from God, to, to, not, to not care about them. And when we don't care about them, I mean, we'll care about something. It just might be something really stupid. 
It, it may just not matter. My hunch is that if you've spent the morning on your knees praying for the lost, or if you've gone to a neighbor who's really hurting and tried to care for them in their time of crisis and need, or if you've been involved in God's work in some way and you get served a multigrain bun instead of the other, you're not going to be all that upset about it. Because I think what's going to captivate your heart is the important things of God. So we get worked up about the weather and the traffic and the food order and all kinds of things, and none of it just matters compared to Jesus and what he wants to do. And this has application for the church, too. That the church, you know, sometimes we get in arguments, and when I say we, I don't just mean Highland Park, I mean the church in, in general at large. We have arguments about silly little things, and what we would say kind of from the restoration movement history is, you know, we care about essential things, but we have a lot of charity and liberty in the non-essential things, the things that don't really matter all that much. We're not going to get all worked up if we switch what type of communion trays we're using next week, right? It's not a big deal, okay? I don't know that we are, but if we did, it's not a big deal. There's a gazillion things to not get worked up about. If we got to park a little differently or if we have to change a time or have to do that, I mean, it just doesn't matter if we're focused on the mission and who Jesus is. And lastly, when God's heart replaces ours, we move from wallowing to passionate. You, you know the person, and maybe you've been that person, or maybe you even are that person, and if you could describe your pace at life, you would just say, I'm kind of wallowing, I'm kind of just barely moving. You know, kind of like if you were in mud, you're, just, you, you're not going to go very fast, just really slow and you're not really getting anywhere, and sometimes we feel like that spiritually, like we're just kind of wallowing. We're maybe giving a little bit of effort, but we're not getting anywhere. We're not giving a whole lot of effort. We're kind of giving up. But what would it be like if God's heart became our heart and we became passionate to care for the lost? I was reminded of a story of a friend named John who years ago was driving, and in front of him he saw a car go off a bridge into a river. And he stopped the car and he ran and he jumped into the river and pulled out a, a lady who was in there and, and she was screaming, my kids, my kids. So John took a big breath and he dove back underneath and, and was able to get one kid out of the car and bring back up. And she said, there's another, there's another. And he said, I felt like I was going to die. I felt like I had no more breath. I had no more energy, but I had to go. That's the moment when you feel like you got nothing left and you feel like, ah, and, but what drives you to do one more thing? It's because his loyalty to God. And, and at that moment, his mission literally was to save someone's life. And so he dove back down one more time. The last kid gets rescued, pulled out from the water, saved. And I promise you that the rest of his life, John will be thankful that he did that, Right? He'll be thankful that he let his lungs burn just a little bit more. He'll be thankful that he risked his own death even to do that. Why? Because it was worth it. And when we move to follow Jesus' heart, it is worth it. It's worth it to face rejection. It's worth it for someone to say, no, I, I, thanks for sharing, but I'm not going to follow your Jesus. Or it's, it's worth it for someone to just kind of be like, eh, yeah, that's nice, and just kind of blow you off. It's worth it for someone to say, yeah, let, let's not talk about this anymore. It, it's worth it for you to pray and pray and try and try. 
because some will be saved. It's worth it to be part of the mission. And if you are truly loyal to God, you care about his mission. And there's a hundred different ways to be part of God's mission. But it ends up looking something like caring about lost people and helping people know Jesus and helping people tell others about Jesus. It looks something like that. And and we need people to do all of those things in different ways. That's what it looks like. I want to ask you, are you part of the mission? Are you participating in the mission to help people know Jesus? If you've ever played hide-and-seek with kids, you know that many kids will go and they'll hide for a little while. But if they pick a really good spot to hide and little kids are good at this, and you just can't find them for a while, what does the kid always start doing? They start making noises, right? Because they want to be hidden, but what else? They want to be found eventually. So they'll start, you know, they start getting a little nervous, or they got to go to the bathroom real bad, you know, or they, they got to do, but they don't want to stay in that dark little closet forever, so they start, you know, whistling, or, hey, over here. Or they bark like a dog or they do something because they want to be found. And I got a hunch there's some people in your life and you assume they're hiding and they don't want to be found. And I kind of think they actually want to be found. I I think maybe they want somebody to care for them and for someone to love them even after they've rejected you to find out, wow, they still love me. And for someone to sit down and share with them, hey, can I just tell you about the reason for my hope in Jesus, the reason for my hope in my life. And for someone to say, hey, our churches, would you come with me on Christmas Eve? Would your family all come? I promise it'll be all right. You can sit with us. Um, would you do that? Would you care about people like that? This morning, um, I want to do two things before we close. And the first is... I just want to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to ask God to just change your heart, to take, to take your heart and to make your heart just like his. Would you just take a moment and ask God to do that? God loves that prayer. Now, just with your eyes still closed and just still praying, would you, would you ask God to give you opportunities this week to make a new friend or maybe to visit with a, an old friend or a family member and to invest in them to some way be part of God's mission to save that person? Just pray that you can be part of God's mission to save someone this week. you pray that through this holiday season that multiple people through this Highland Park family would accept God's call in their life to follow him now if you would would you would you stand and um, maybe you're the person who has never followed God's plan 
and God loves you so much he died for you and he wants you to be saved too regardless of your past and your history he wants you to be saved and he cares for you he knows the stuff in your life and he loves you he even likes you and if you would like to come and place your faith in Jesus today and to be baptized or to maybe even just start that study and to talk and to pray we'll have some folks up here during this song and even later after the service if you just like to come quietly that's fine too we just want to give you this invitation God we we pray for anyone in our midst today whether they're down front here or up in the balcony or in the overflow maybe they're watching online later I, I pray that if if they have not accepted your call into their life that that your great mission to save them they've never said yes to, I pray that today would be the day. In Jesus' name.